We're going to continue our series today that we started, we're starting a year off with, Building a Daring Faith. Now, this may be the first time you've been here for this series, and, and don't worry because each week it stands kind of independent. They'll link together, and at the end, you can get the series. You can go online and listen to the series. But uh, the series is a very important series because as it says in our series theme verse, 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if we want to please God with our lives, we have to understand that a major, a very important part of it, in fact, you you can't please him without this, is that we have to be continually building, developing, and exercising our faith, because that's what pleases God. We've also noted that according to Jude, chapter 1, verse 20, it says, you, dear friends, build yourselves up in this most holy faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And what everyone has to stand, every individual, is this is your opportunity and your responsibility. No one can do this for you. You have to decide that it's important enough and that you want to please God and so that you want to become a man, you want to become a woman of daring faith. It's up to you. Now, what can be done and what I'm attempting to do in this series, once again, is to teach you what Scripture has revealed about faith. So far, we've looked at what does faith look like. We've talked about it's believing when I don't see it. It's obeying when I don't understand it. It's persisting when I don't feel like it. It's giving when I don't have it. It's it's thanking God before I receive it. And it's trusting God even if I don't get it. Then we looked at how God exercises our faith. God will be active in this because he understands that his word says without faith it's impossible to please him. So he's not just going to say, well, good luck, and you figure it out for yourself. He he teaches us, he's revealed to us how we can please him with our faith. And as we get in that process, he'll be part of that process and he'll help us to exercise that faith. And we saw that he does it through allowing difficulties to come in our life. That that helps us to persist even when we don't feel like it. He he, uh, allows uh, demands to come in our life. Some are, are written in his word, others are very individual as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And he'll see if we'll listen We'll believe what we don't see if we'll obey what we don't understand. He uses delays. We hate the wait. But he'll use delays to see if we'll hang in there. Again, if we'll persist even when we don't feel like it. And he uses dollars to test if we will give even when we don't have it. Now, last week, we kind of turned the corner a little bit. And we began looking at why we fail at faith. We know what it is. We know how God exercises it. So what happens? What causes us to fall out of this process of pleasing God through our faith? Last week, using the, Peter, the story of Peter walking on the water, we saw that we often fail at faith because we lose our focus. Remember the story? Peter got out, got out of the boat. He's walking on the water to Jesus on these very rough seas, and he's doing great. He's out there walking on the water, something no human being had ever done before. And Jesus gave him the power to do it. But what happened? Then he began looking around at the waves around him and the winds, and he began 
to, to look at the circumstances around his life. And when he took his eyes off Jesus, when he lost his focus, he sank down into the water and began to flail for his life, trying to swim himself back to the boat. And see, that's often what we do. We exercise our faith. We, we get out of our comfort zone, and we begin to follow God in some avenue of faith that he leads us to do, and we're doing good. Man, we're walking on the water of faith. But then all of a sudden, we start looking around at the circumstances in our life, and we get our eyes off the Lord. And when that happens, we fall, we fail, and we begin to flail about life, trying to figure life out for ourselves instead of allowing God and the Holy Spirit to guide us through our circumstances. Now today, I want to look at, I told you there were two primary reasons, two ways that we fail at faith. Today, I want to look at the second one. Now, I'm going to ask you to stay with me as we do this today, because I've got to really set up the story, the biblical story that I'm going to share with you today, so that you can get the full impact of it, because it's a very dramatic story. Now, to do so, we've got to go all the way back to 605 B.C. Now, all of you know the world-shattering event that happened in 605 B.C., Okay, all right. The Battle of Carchemish occurred. Now, that at that time, the two ruling superpowers on earth were Egypt and Babylonia. Those two nations collided at the Battle of Carchemish in 605, and some historians say it was 606, but we're not going to squibble over a year. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon defeated Pharaoh Necho of Egypt in this battle. They defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. The Egyptians previously were the superpower, and now this new upstart nation defeats them in this, this significant battle. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar begins to rejoice in his army in their great victory over this very powerful nation, as they're heading back now towards Babylon, along the way, they are threatening and making each city and village pay tribute to them and give an oath of loyalty to them. And so Nebuchadnezzar, on his way back up to Babylon, stops by Judah and Jerusalem. At the time, King Jehoiakim is the king of Judah. And he goes ahead, like all these other folks, and he gives an oath of allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, and they begin paying tribute to Babylonia. Well, in 601 BC, Nebuchadnezzar decides that he didn't finish the job with Egypt. So he's going back to Egypt, and he's going to finish the job. He's not only going to have a major victory over them in battle, he's going to invade Egypt and conquer Egypt itself. Well, kind of like what happens in a football game when in one half, one team dominates the whole game, but then at halftime, they go into the locker room and they, they review their game plan, the team who's behind, they come out in the second half and accomplish this stunning comeback victory. Have you ever seen anything like that? <laughs> well, Nebuchadnezzar goes down against Egypt, and this time Egypt's got a new battle plan, and they shellack Nebuchadnezzar. And so now this time, all these cities 
who have been paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, they're rejoicing. They're having parties. Nebuchadnezzar, this tyrant, has been defeated. And so they began to switch their loyalty from Babylonia and King Nebuchadnezzar to Egypt once again. And that's exactly what Jehoiakim does. He stops paying tribute, and he realigns Judah with now the victor Egypt. These are fair-weather friends, right? Now, Nebuchadnezzar takes offense to this. And so in 597 B.C., he lays siege again to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is still the king as this siege begins. But some point, and historians believe that he died during the siege because all of a sudden he just disappears. And in his place, his son takes the kingship. Jehoiachin becomes king. Now, now get this. He becomes king, historians gauge, between the ages of eight years old and 18. How'd you like to become a king with an army besieging your capital city at eight years old sitting on the throne? Or maybe he was 18. In the end, it probably played out into his favor because Nebuchadnezzar conquers the city. And instead of executing the, the king of Judah, he takes 10,000 captives with him in exile back to Babylonia, and king, including the king, all his families, all the nobility of Judah, and all of the army generals and the high commanding officers of the Jewish army. He takes them all into exile back to Babylonia. This is probably when later Bible characters we know as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's probably when they were taken from Judah back to uh, Babylonia to be in exile for 70 years. Now, at that time, out of his mercy, and Nebuchadnezzar being very merciful, he appoints Zedekiah, who is the uncle of Jehoiachin, to be the new king. He allows them to have a king. And he allows them to go ahead with their country and with their lives and all that kind of, out of mercy, he does this. He, he allows them to have this. So Jeremiah now is a prophet of God in this time. He, he's the one leading spiritually the nation of Israel. And Jeremiah throughout all this time, he's warning Israel that they better turn their hearts back to God. In fact, all this evil that's already happened to them is because the kings that Jeremiah warned wouldn't listen to the word of God. And so terrible, terrible things are happening. And so right after this battle of 597, when Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and, and Jehoiachin and all the nobles and all that are taken in exile back to Babylonian, there's some false kind of prophets and teachers rising up and they're saying, oh, don't worry about this. This isn't going to last any time. God's going to bring it back and we're going to raise up again. And Jeremiah said, no, that's not how this is going to work. You got to understand, this is not going to turn around overnight. And so he warns them to be very, very careful. Well, Zedekiah doesn't listen. And he breaks his oath with Nebuchadnezzar and in the ninth year of his reign declared open revolt against the Babylonians. As you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar once again takes offense to this. And so in 589, he brings his armies back to Judah, surrounds Jerusalem, and begins 
what turns out to be a three-year siege. Now, the other portions of Scripture, it, des- it describes the horror of the siege, uh, of the extreme conditions that were put upon the people inside the city of Jerusalem, how they had nothing to eat and disease ripped through the city and, and they began to cannibalize babies and stuff. It, it was horrible. It was horrible, 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 horrible. And Jeremiah had warned them. They didn't turn their hearts back to God. During this time, Zedekiah goes back to Jeremiah, and he goes, please tell God, please tell God. Jeremiah says, you had your chance. And so they lay siege to the city once again. 586, approximately 33 months later or something like that, the Babylonian army captures Jerusalem. Now, this is where our story picks up. That was a long introduction to get to the story today, wasn't it? But you needed to know that so you fully understand the drama of what we're going to look at. All right, so now in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, if you have your Bible, you can open that in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 39, verse 1. This is how Jerusalem was taken in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. In the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's 11th year, the city wall was broken through. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed towards Arabah. There must have been a secret passageway. And so when they knew the, it was time to get out of here, and when they knew there was no way they were going to victor and the Babylonians had broken through the walls, they, they at night snuck through the king's garden, and they snuck away, and they were trying to get away. Verse 5, but the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. All right, so Zedekiah had rebelled against him. Now the Babylonians capture him. They bring him back to King Nebuchadnezzar, whose headquarters is at this city of of, uh, Riblah. Now, here's the sentence he gives them. Look at this. Verse 6. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. So this time, he just brings them all. And he makes Zedekiah witness the slaughter of his heirs, the slaughter of his own sons. And then he brings in all the nobles, and he slaughters all of them right before his eyes. And then, verse 7, then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. How horrible, right? But but when I read these things, I'm horrified by them. Sometimes I'm traumatized by them, of the brutality of that day. Now, I I want to emphasize with this the brutality in the heart of this king. He did have a mercy streak, and he had showed them mercy in appointing Zedekiah king. But this was no one to trifle with. This guy was bloodthirsty. He had within him the power to indiscriminately slaughter people, put their eyes out, torture them. That is the character of King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's what he does. This time he's saying, I'm not taking a chance. I'm going to just kill them all. Now, 
The Babylonians set to fire to the royal palace and houses and the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. In other words, now they're going to carry everyone else back. Many of the people became collaborators, and they swore their allegiance to King Nebuchadnezzar. So now he's taking the, the, the rest of the choice people back to Babylon. It says, but Nebuzaradan, who Nebuchadnezzar had turned over to be in charge of all the cleanup of this, of this siege, commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing, and at that time he gave them vineyards and fields. And, and so this commander of the guard, this, this, this head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a Babylonian, he takes this poor people. These are the poorest of the poor people. Everyone else, middle class, upper middle class, rich people, whoever's left. Remember, he's killed all the nobility. He takes them back. But these people, the poorest of the poor, he leaves there. And in his mercy, he gives them fields and vineyards so that they they can live, they can subside. Now enters the story a guy named Jedaliah. Jedaliah now is appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar to be the governor of Judah. He's not going to allow him to have a king anymore because that didn't work when he he was merciful with Zedekiah. Zedekiah rebelled. So now he appoints one of his own people to be governor as the army leaves and to rule over the people. Now, Jedekiah was, was very gracious to the people. And he, once again, allowed them to have farms and allowed them to have vineyards. And he allowed them to prosper. Now, this poor Jewish remnant was extremely grateful to Jedaliah. And really, all they wanted, these poor, desperate people, all they wanted was to stay under the radar of King Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't want all the stuff that happened in the past to happen again. They just wanted to get on with their lives. They didn't want war. They didn't want kings. They didn't want armies. All they wanted was to live peacefully with their families. Enters a character named Ishmael. Now somehow, when Nebuchadnezzar killed all the nobility, he slipped through because he had some royal blood in him. And he wasn't executed, nor was he carried away to Babylonia. Ishmael gets the big head. And he decides, I've got royal blood in me. And these Babylonians aren't going to rule over us. And so, consulting no one, he decides to assassinate Jedaliah. And so he does. He assassinates Jedaliah and all Jedaliah's rulers with him. And then he goes on a Jewish Al-Qaeda-like spree, starting killing all kinds of people. Now, can you imagine how this poor Jewish remnant reacted to this? They're going, are you out of your mind, Ishmael? Are you crazy? You just re-invoked the wrath of one of the most bloodthirsty and powerful kings in the whole world. We're doomed. We've had it now. Last time he barely spared us, and now he's not going to spare us either. I mean, they're in desperate, desperate straits. Now, eventually, somebody comes up with the idea of them just getting out of town and fleeing down to Egypt. 
Remember, Egypt had conquered Babylonia the second time. And so they said, man, let's, let's just get to Egypt. Let's get out of here. We go down there. You know, we're nobodies. We're poor. We're nothing in the world. Surely Nebuchadnezzar is not going to chase us down there. He's not going to spend the money and waste his army's time and all that to go after us in Egypt. We'll, we'll just run to Egypt. But before they did that, they decided that they would approach Jeremiah, the prophet of God. And so in Jeremiah 42, verse 1, then all the army officers, including Jehonan, son of Korea, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshea, and all the people from the least to the greatest approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Now look what they say. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Now, in that day, only a very select few people were filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that God would speak through the Holy Spirit to them. See, today, every one of us who trusts Jesus Christ as our Savior are indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as Bible describes it, teaches us, tells us, directs us. Only what God speaks to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says to us to direct our path. So we can, we can go right to God in prayer, and God will respond to us directly, but not back in this day. They had to go to a prophet. So they go to this prophet, and they say, pray to the Lord for us, and tell us what God, tell us where we should go. Tell us what God wants us to do. Now, this was a very smart decision. That before they just reacted impulsively, they went and inquired of the prophet of God. What does God want us to do? They're right on track. They've got their I's dotted. They've got their T's crossed. This is the best thing they could possibly have done. And so this is, though, the point that this Jewish remnant will reveal to us the second and the most consequential way we fail at faith. Jeremiah 42, 4. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. He says, I'll, do, I'll go to the Lord for you. Good job. This is smart of you. He said to them, this is what the Lord. He goes back, he prays to God, and he comes back to the report. He said, this, he said this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition says. Look what God says. If you stay in this land... I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you up and not uproot you. For I'm grieved over the disaster I inflicted on you. He says, I'm grieved over all the death and all the suffering that's befallen you. He says this, do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, who you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from your hands. Oh, man, can you imagine prophet comes back and says, don't worry. Don't be afraid of the king. God has told me to tell you, just, you just stay right where you are. I got it all under control. Don't you fear that king no matter how brutal he is. I've got him under control. You're going to be fine. Oh, don't you know, they must have left and rejoiced and thrown a party and, 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 and worshiped God. No. At that point, they basically said to Jeremiah, thank you, Jeremiah. We're talking to God on our part. And, and please tell him that we really, really do truly appreciate his divine suggestion. 
But we're going to Egypt. We're going to Egypt. That, that's the most logical thing to do. This poor Jewish remnant greatly, tragically underestimated the fury of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not like they weren't warned. They fled from God to their own slaughter. And Jeremiah told them that's exactly what was going to happen. Jeremiah 42, verse 19 through 20. Oh, remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this. I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake when you decided to do that. He goes on to say, verse 20, when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord our God for us, tell us everything he says and we will do it, he says. But here, again, is where they reveal to us the second reason we often fail at faith. They went to God. They heard from God. But what they do? They ignored God's response. They just ignored it. Thank you, Jeremiah. Oh, I appreciate you going to God. We know you're a great prophet. Oh, that was so nice of you. Please thank God for that suggestion. Boy, that was really encouraging, but we're going to Egypt. God says, I am not your consultant. God says, I am your God. I am your eternal king. God says, when you treat my divine direction as suggestions to accept or discard, God says, I'm offended by that. We've gone to God. We've received a response from God. We too have ignored that response. We've got to God and we pray. We say, oh God, I've got this situation. God, I don't know what to do. And through the Holy Spirit or through reading your word or some of the things we're going to learn next week, God responds to us. And we go, oh God, oh, that, that's so comforting. Thank you, God. That was really nice of you to get back with me that way. But I'm going to do this. That, we, we do that. We fail at faith because we fail to obey God's revealed direction for our life. God's revealed desire for the next step that we take in our Christian walk. Whatever it is, God reveals it. He says, here's where I want you to go next. Here's how I want to exercise your faith. Here's where I want you to take a risk. Here's where, And we go, oh, God, man, that would be exciting if I did that. Wow, that really would be a risk. That, that really would take me to the next level of my faith. That really would be building a daring faith. I'm like, That's cool, God. That is really amazing. But no, I'm not going to do it. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But here's the problem. Their hearts are far from me. This was indicative of the history of Israel. And it's indicative of the Christian community today in so many ways. 
We, we, our hearts are there. We love God. We don't hate God. We, we, we want to please God. We come in here and we sing hymns in, in the traditional service. We'll sing hymns and in the contemporary services at the fall. We'll sing contemporary songs. And folks will, will raise their hands to the Lord. And, and I, I love to watch it and I love to hear it. And you just see people sincerely praising God and they're connecting with God. And, but when God says, here's the next step I want you to take. When God says, you know, after the service, I want you to go out to the next step booth on the patio. And I want you to find out about serving in such and such a ministry. I, I, want, you, I want you to do whatever. And we go, uh, you must have the wrong number, God. I can't do that. You, you, you must have been mis- kind of misidentified me with somebody else because you couldn't be asking me to do that. And God gives us direction. We've prayed direction. Oh, God, I want to build a daring faith. I know that without faith it's impossible to please you. I know I'm the only one that can work on it. And Jude one twenty says, God, I want, I want to do it. I want to do it. But then when God says, okay, let's go. Uh, no. Without faith. See, that's why it says it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What's keeping you from building a daring faith? Have you lost your focus like Peter? One time, you you, you truly were walking on the water of faith. But then you started looking around the circumstances of your life or maybe looking inside you and allowing your past failures to to begin to control your life again and say, who am I kidding? I could never live for God. I could never be a true Christian. I, I, that, that's for other people, and, and, but that's not me. I, I, I'll do the best I can, and I'll go through the motions. And, and See, you lose your focus. You stop looking at Jesus. You stop making the finish line like Paul said. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. See, we, we stop that. We get lost in the process. Has that happened to you? Well, remember what happened last week when Peter sank? It said immediately the Lord put his hand out, and he picked Peter back up, and together they got into the boat. Just as I told you last night, I'll remind you this week, God will do that again for you. But maybe that story didn't resonate with you as much as this Bible story does. And your issue is you have ignored God's direction. You've prayed about something. And you've prayed, God, I need your guidance in this. God, I need your direction in this. God, I've got this important decision. And, and, and God, I, 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 this is such a, looks like such an amazing opportunity, a new job possibility maybe, or, or maybe in a relationship. I think he's the one. I think she's the one that I should marry and spend my life with. And, but God, I, I, first I want to go to you. I want to pray to you, God, because I know without faith it's impossible to please you, and I don't want any obstacles to living a life of faith with you. And so, God, you reveal to me. And all of a sudden, God says, okay, I will. That's not the right person for you. I mean, look at their values. They're not believers. They don't share biblical values. They don't approach life from a worldview. My, my, my word clearly says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Maybe it's a business partner, not, not, a, not a potential soulmate. You know, I want to go into business, and the guy says, not with that person. And we go, 
<laughs> oh, God. I, I don't think I really heard you. I, I don't think that was really the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. I, I appreciate the time with you, but I'm going to do it. And oftentimes when we do that, in fact, most of the time we do that, it comes back to bite us bad, doesn't it? Hebrews 4, 7 says, Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know what? God really does talk to us. The Holy Spirit leads, lives in us. I wonder if right now, with some of you today, it won't be all of you. It'll never be that case, but someone here. God has been giving you direction. And to date, you haven't followed it. You may be a believer, and God's asking you to take a next step by serving in some ministry. God's asking you to take a next step by by beginning to, to tithe. God's asking you to take a next step by volunteering just to do manual things, be part of the chair ministry, huge ministry here at the church, or be an usher. And by the way, ladies, we're going to open up being an usher at the church to you. And so if you'd like to be an usher, write down on your connection card, I'd like to be an usher. What is it that God has been talking to you about? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a business deal. Maybe it's a new guard. Maybe it's buying a car. You want that car so bad. Maybe it looks great. But God said, don't do it. What is it? What scripture say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I want to pause and get to the most important one of those. Because you might be here today and the direction God is giving you is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're going through life embracing what most world religions tell you to embrace, and that is you got to give it your best. You got to do your best. You got to be a better person. Somehow you got to appease whatever God is out there. And then maybe at the end of your life, if you've done a good enough job, that God, that presence, that supreme being will allow you to enter into the paradise of eternity. That's not biblical. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And God has been tapping on your shoulder. The Holy Spirit has been whispering in your heart because you've come to church a few times and you've heard about trusting Jesus as your Savior and you've not done it. Today is the day. If you've not trust Christ and you know you need to, why would you wait another moment? What's standing in your way? God is saying, I love you. I want to forgive your sin. I want to give you the promise of eternal life. And you go, oh God, that sounds Amazing, but you've been saying, but no, not now. What's keeping you 
from building a daring faith. Let's bow our heads. Maybe you're a believer today, and this has resonated with you because God's been talking to you about something. Well, today is God's opportunity to respond affirmatively to his direction. Don't do what these folks did. Don't do what so many of us have done. Don't do what you're tempted to do. Don't get what Satan is trying to get you to do. Just give it to God. You know, the truth of the matter is some of the most risky thing God calls us to do, he never actually causes us to fulfill. The Bible, sometimes he would challenge somebody to do something like he did Isaac in slaying his, his, son, Ish, uh, or his son Isaac, not Isaac, but, but slaying his son Abraham. And then God said, no, I just want to see if you're willing. I won't make you do that. See, so what's God leading you to do? But if you're here today and you never trust that Jesus Christ is your Savior, right now is the Holy Spirit drawing you to do that? If so, while no one's looking around, just so I know if that need is here today, would you slip up your hand and say, Pastor Pete, I've, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior, but I do feel the Lord leading me. Just raise your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Yeah, anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? All right, now, now listen, the Holy Spirit's working today. God is giving you direction. And it's, in this area, it's a direction of divine, eternal love. So how do I receive? How do I trust Christ? Simple, you just ask. Remember what that verse said? By grace you're saved, through faith, it's the gift of God. God just wants to give it to you. Romans 10.9 says, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I did it as a nine-year-old boy through a prayer that goes something like this. And if you need to use these words as a template, you can. There's nothing magical about them. I'm making them up. But I prayed something like, God, I do love you. And I want to spend eternity with you. I want to go to heaven. I want to live for you, God. And so right now, God, I confess with my mouth that Jesus really is Lord. He is the only way back to you. There is no other way. Without what Jesus did on the cross, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless before you. And so I confess with my mouth, Jesus really is Lord. And God, search my heart right now. And know that I believe in my heart to the best of the faith that I have cultivated right now. I believe in my heart, God, that he died on the cross for sin. That he was buried and on the third day rose again. And because he was willing to go to the cross, God, you have given him the authority to forgive my sin and to grant me eternal life with you. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you right now to be my Savior. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Now, look up at me. If you just made that decision, God fulfilled his promise to you. 1 John 5.13 says, These things are right to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. If you made that decision today, I'm going to ask you to take your connection card that was in your bulletin. Make sure all the information about yourself is accurate and legible on the front. On the back, on the top, it says, My decision today. And the first box you can check says, I blank trust that Christ is my Savior. Put your first name in there. And then, 
turn that card in. Put it in the offering plate if you can get it done that fast or drop it in one of the offering kiosks or just as you leave today, just drop it off at the, uh, at the guest services booth. You don't even have to talk to somebody. You can just drop it off. And what we want to do is we want to pray for you. And we want to reach out to you and help you now begin this amazing journey of faith because without it, it's impossible to please God. You'll have taken care of the first part of that formula because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists. That's what you just did. And the second part is, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's what we live our life for, in faith that if we will live this life for him, when we get there, he's going to reward us in ways that are comparable to the sacrifices we've made here. Now, if you're here today and you heard about trusting Christ and you just, just didn't understand it enough or weren't sure enough about it, before you leave today, in the lobby at our guest services booth or our information racks, there's this little blue book called You Can Be Sure. Take time to stop by and pick one up. Free of charge. Doesn't cost a penny. Take it home and read it. And this book will reveal to you everything Scripture has to say about how your sins can be forgiven and how heaven can not just be a hope but can be a promise. I love you. Next week we're going to end the series. And I'm going to teach you how you, what you can be doing every day practically to build your faith. That's what we're going to finish the series with. Our ushers are going to come forward now. We're going to receive our offering. And remember, this is an opportunity to exercise faith. Because God tests us with our dollars. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for, I thank you for these examples. And I'm sorry that we had to learn them at the, traumatic expense of others, especially the second lesson with the Jewish remnant who were ultimately wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar. God, help us not to make those same kind of mistakes. We who are believers, if you're speaking to us, God, give us courage to follow and trust you because that's really what it is. It's a matter of trusting you. Lord, if someone here today trusted Jesus as their Savior. Give them the courage to identify themselves so that we can minister to them and love them and pray for them. Now, Lord, we pray that you'll bless our gifts that we give to you now. These are demonstrations of, first, our love for you, but then are, secondly, also demonstrations of our faith. Bless us, love us, use us to be the bridge to people in our community and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.